0: Good evening. I just want to begin by by saying, isn't it amazing where we are right now? And also, what I want to point out, the speed that we're going right now. So I just want to point this out that right now, um, you're on this teeny little planet that is going around the sun at a rate of 67,000 miles per hour so you know we've been telling you all the time about these different reasons why your mind is wandering now you know <laughs> and in terms of where we are i think you might also know this this teeny little planet that we're on that's that's, that's going around this sun so quickly is located on one of the spiral arms of the Milky Way galaxy. And it's just a little dot there. And that arm is spinning around the center of this galaxy at a very quick rate at 558,000 miles per hour along with, they say, and I think they just recently supposedly discovered this, along with about a trillion other stars. And what's so amazing about this is that the Milky Way galaxy is just a very small part of what's called the local group. And the local group... (laughs) Just trying to get you oriented here, where you are. <laughs> Sometimes we get disoriented on retreats. And, and the local group is, is a cluster of about 54 different galaxies. And the local group is part of the, of the Virgo supercluster, super which contains about 100 different galaxy groups. It's amazing where we are. <laughs> and it, the, the reason I'm, I'm saying this is just to, to situate here we are in the midst of this vast, vast universe. Really, just a little speck in this vast universe. And in the midst of it, we're involved here. We're involved in this mystery, this, this amazing thing of living and dying. And that in and of itself is such a mystery. Living and dying. The activity of that on this small planet. And such an amazing thing. Brian Swim puts it well. He says, Four and a half billion years ago, the earth was a flaming molten ball of rock. And now it can sing opera. It really is amazing, and such a mystery, how this unfolds. And not only that, just this this activity of living and dying. I think many of you probably had uh, similar experiences that I've had this past year. This past year, uh, a friend of mine, they, uh, they had two, two beautiful babies, twins, that I saw before coming here. And also this past year, uh, a childhood friend was found uh, dead in his apartment. We're in the midst of this. We're in the midst of living and dying of those around us. We, we ourselves are part of that process. And then what you might be touching here is in some ways a a similar thing, just the mystery of the arising and passing away of our experience. You know, when I think back to when I began practicing meditation, one of the appealing and really the important aspects of it was that it, it helped me touch this quality of mystery that all of us are involved in on this teeny little planet. And I felt that meditation was this gateway into becoming intimate with this mystery in some way, touching it, tasting it in a way that I never had uh, before. And I think this is one of the reasons that I explored uh, Zen practice as well so deeply is because it, it had a particular kind of lifestyle and also a language that helped me refine this becoming intimate with this mystery. And also, it really ended up being the, at least at, at that point in my life, the perfect antidote to how I was approaching difficulties. Because how was I approaching difficulties in my life? I was trying to figure it all out. You ever tried that one? <laughs> Maybe you've gotten as far as I've gotten through the trying to figure it all out, trying to get it in nice, neat little po- uh, packages. In a place where I could quote unquote understand it intellectually, understand it, thinking that's how to really address difficulty. And and I think you know the the many years of practicing and being committed to this tradition, kind of this tradition of early Buddhism or Vipassana or whatever you want to call it, it really has kept this this quality alive, this that this connection to this quality of of mystery. But I also want to be honest with you, I, uh, even though this is really my home for my spiritual practice, this is what I uh, really am in love with is, is early Buddhism and Vipassana, is that I don't always find the language to support this touching the mystery. And that's why I want to share with you some of these reflections tonight, to really offer you a different kind of language or just a little bit different frame for what we're doing here on this journey here together. So really what I'm doing is I'm just bringing kind of a a different language or a different word. So there might not be anything really new here, but just a reminder from a different angle. it's true, some of you might find this helpful and others not. And with that, I wanna point out, that's part of the job of a yogi, of a practitioner is to make sure that what you're hearing from us is you're using what's useful and having the skill to put everything else aside. It's so important for the unfolding of our path. And I, I want to put this in a little bit different context. So I want to begin with a a side note rather than the main talk. But I think it's an important side note. It's probably the, maybe the, the most important part of the talk is just to acknowledge something about this. And that's to point out that the, the words and, and language that's used to describe the spiritual path gives a different feeling, sense of its unfolding. And some language or some words are going to reveal certain aspects of the path. But with the use of that language, it will conceal other aspects. And then if we use another word or, or another language, it's going to reveal certain aspects or or and then also conceal certain aspects. So it's the process of revealing and concealing that happens with language and with words. And I want to give you an example of this, also a visual example. So we have something here that you can see. And I can use different words to describe this object that I'm holding up. Like I could, I could uh, call it a rock. Here's a rock. And that word has a certain quality to it, that k-. it's a rock. And sometimes if we look at this with that word, it's going to pop out different things about this object. For me, when I hear the word rock, it has a kind of an edge to it or edginess to it. It brings out, you could say, the edges of this object. But I could also call it a stone. I have a stone here. And do you hear how that word, how the word stone conveys something else? It reveals something else that the word rock doesn't. To me, stone has more of a smoothness to it. It, it reveals the smoothness of this object. So, so just in two words, we can see how there's a kind of revealing and concealing. And this will become important further on in the talk of, of the utilize, how do we utilize language? So rock or stone. And then we see certain things around it. Just one thing about this. You know what I love about giving a talk, you know, at this point in a retreat is that I could hold up something like this and get everybody's fascination. You get people sitting for like six weeks or three months. It's so easy to uh, please the crowd. <laughs> You would have thunk, huh? (laughs) And and that's just in one language. That's just in English. Tonight you might see another object in the sky. In English, the moon. Or la luna. (laughs) Or a, a more masculine quality, der Mund in German. You hear how each each of those words conveys something, gives us a different feeling sense of that object out there. It reveals and conceals. Jorge Luis Borges, uh the, the late Argentinian writer, said that each word is a poetic work. And I think these exemplify this. So here you are on this retreat, you're given different words and different language to hopefully reveal certain things, but what happens is other things get concealed. You know, in early Buddhism, we've been giving you this this story, this narrative of this path of cultivation and abandoning. I love the story. It reveals certain aspects of what we're doing. Yet in later Buddhism, sometimes we get a different narrative that we're already awake or the story of Buddha nature again, a kind of revealing and conce- concealing. So why am I sharing this all of, with, with all of you on this long retreat? The reason is I want to acknowledge the difficulty of language. One of the things here is, is, is uh, uh, it's important for the sake of inclusivity, inclusivity and diversity in the sense of when one language or one story is being used, it runs the danger, or probably inevitably is gonna exclude. Just using one phrase, some can be excluded or some excluded, it's, it's really so tricky. And then we have our own inner language that speaks to us in particular ways. And part of your skill as a yogi is finding that inner language that's, that's helping you connect with really what's going on. And, and, and I want to point out, part of what you're doing here is, is digging into what's going on moment after moment. And you are getting these Dharma talks uh, every night, but I also want to point out, again, the responsibility of kind of the yogi is sometimes you have to translate, you have to refashion what you're hearing to actually find the language that speaks to you. Because we have this, you could say, this imperfect situation. And, and, I, and I want to acknowledge that and support that. Because sometimes we can have this feeling of, of that I need to fit into the one story that's being told, or even the five stories. And also, I want to point out, this isn't an exploration of what I want to hear or what I like to hear. I think that's very superficial. But rather, what's the language, the narrative that will convey the path that leads to awakening for you? So you might not get anything out of this narrative of the mystery, which is so okay. But maybe there's a process of translation that will allow you to come into a deeper relationship with what we're doing here together. Okay, so enough of that. Back to the mystery. It's always good to begin with the Buddha. And one story, it's actually interesting, there's many different stories about how the Buddha began on his path, which probably, you probably probably most of you know, his spiritual journey beginning when he left the palace walls. He was living this life, so the story goes, in this palace. And he secretly left those palace walls and was exposed to sickness, old age, and death, and a renunciate. And then there was the step he took, the step outside of the walls, and to me, when I, when I imagine stepping out of the palace walls, it conveys to me this quality of, oh, in this palace, I know what's going on, and I'm willing to take the step out into this world that I don't know, into the world of mystery. And it's in this realm of the mystery, of this mysterious existence that he, that gives rise to this path, that gives rise to his awakening. You might be hearing in this that I'm actually referring to of a very particular flavor of the sense of mystery. Okay. And in order to give, convey this particular flavor that I want to share with you, um, I want to, again, share with you another story that expresses it. And it's the, the story that, that shares with us how uh, Zen Buddhism began. So once upon a time... In ancient times, when the Blessed One was at Vulture Peak, he lifted and twirled a flower before his assembled disciples. All were silent. Only Mahakasapa broke into a smile. And then the Blessed One said, I have the treasury of the true Dharma I the subtle mind of nirvana, the true form of no form, and the flawless gate of the teaching. It is not established upon words and phrases. It is a special transmission outside tradition. I now entrust this to Mahakasapa. Just the lifting of a flower, the twirling of a flower. And then the recognition of that, something happened there and Mahakasapa smiled. And that was the transmission, the transmission of the true Dharma eye that was not established upon words and phrases. That's just special transmission outside of tradition. So I want to point out a little bit about This mystery that happens between Mahakasapa and the Buddha within the experience of the twirling of the flower. Because I want to equate this with this quality of mystery that we can touch on this path. And the first thing I want to point out is that this is not the mystery of not understanding or not knowing. There's a kind of recognition, there's a kind of realization or understanding that's happening, but it's very different than a kind of understanding that that we're used to. So it's a mystery that's imbued with some kind of of understanding. But yet a mystery that is beyond language, that's beyond words and phrases, that can be expressed in something as simple as the twirling of a flower. And what I want to point out is that all of you on this retreat have been entering this realm again and again and again. We've been giving you this encouragement to, to touch the direct experience of the breath or a sound or an emotion or even a thought. Entering this realm beyond language, the non-conceptual, or maybe more precisely, the less conceptual with a kind of understanding, gaining a kind of understanding, you might notice that doesn't fit into words so well, but a kind of knowing that's there that you're experiencing. This is the particular flavor of mystery that I wanna share with you. And this, this experience of this, of going beyond language, beyond the conceptual, can be so simple. It can be right now, as you're sitting here, feeling the abdomen rising and falling. And with the experience of the abdomen rising and falling, already there's a a movement beyond the conceptual. It's no longer I am breathing. It's the experience of the abdomen rising and falling as you feel that. And then there's another step. Oh, interesting. It's not even actually rising and falling is not even happening. That's a concept that's built upon these changing sensations that you might be feeling right now in the breath. All it is is the change of sensation. Maybe the sensations of tightness, looseness, warmth, coolness. And then when you sense in just that, that it's sensations that create this concept of rising and falling. Another step of seeing, oh, sensations, that's just another concept. And then there's just the direct experience of just this. And there is a knowing of it. There is a, a knowing of this world, world, but not necessarily words for it. There it is. There is the direct experience, right? As as uh, we're sitting here in this Dhamma hall, and there's something mysterious. Can you feel that? Just in, when we when we delve into the abdomen rising and falling, there's the mystery right there. We don't even have to go out looking at the stars. It's right here in this moment. And the other thing I want to point out about this flavor of mystery is that it's not necessarily dramatic. I would would argue that it's definitely profound, but not necessarily dramatic. And definitely profound in the bigger scheme of things. Things. The Zen poet puts it, uh, uh, Ryokan puts it well. He says, there is a bamboo grove in the front of my hut. Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. There's a bamboo grove in front of my hut. Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. In the simple, in the ordinary, there is the mystery. One of the brilliant things about this path that the Buddha shared with us is that there's also this process that we're going through where we're using language to go beyond language. And I want to point this out because this is an important piece for this exploration tonight that we've been encouraging you to use language in a certain way to go beyond language. In particular, you might remember uh, Joseph mentioned, maybe it was last week, a few days ago, that in this commentary, the commentary uh, by the name of the Vasudhi Maga, the, the path of purification, the, to purification, it explains that, that strong perception or firm perception is approximate cause for mindfulness. Perception being this recognition of what's there. This, sometimes this naming. That's what helps impel mindfulness forward. That's what helps with this direct experience. So a kind of language that brings us beyond language. Some examples of this, so there can be some clarity around this. It's kind of like, you know, sometimes uh, my wife will cook something and my sense of taste isn't so great at times, and, and she'll, she'll say, I just put a little bit of cumin in there, or just a little bit of turmeric or rosemary. Can you taste that? And then I have this perception. I have the perception of, oh, there's some rosemary in here, and then, and then it can pop out in that meal. Oh, there it is. Interesting. I didn't notice that before in the, in the bite before that, but there it is. There's the rosemary. So here's this word or this perception that opens up the direct experience of that, of that taste of food. And it's not like I land on the word rosemary, I land with the direct experience of it. It pops out because of the perception. It brings me to something that's beyond language through language. Or this comes from my nephew's girlfriend. i I using uh, Bonnie's scheme. I, I remember I was crowdsourcing a similar talk Around the use of language and, and going beyond language. And she gave this great example of when she was younger, uh, her mother had told her she lived in a big city to go out and just to be aware of uh, all the pennies that she saw. She said it was amazing. She was walking around the city and she was amazed at how many pennies were all over the city. She'd never known that before. Her mother had given her that perception. This is what we're giving you so much of the time with these teachings. We're sharing this framework with you with that purpose. It's the purpose of strengthening perception to strengthen mindfulness so we can have this direct experience. Or in the language that I'm using tonight, so that you can touch the mystery. So there's a use to the use of language while we're here. And it can really lead to a a deeper sense of the world and and into insight of, of where we're hooked and trapped. Again, some poems that, that I think reveal this this quality of, of a deeper sense of how things are. Again, back to the Zen poet, uh, Ryokan. And this is about his hut. He lived in a very, very simple hut. He was a, a hermit who lived a very simple life. He writes this poem. He says, don't say my hut has nothing to offer come and I will share with you the cool breeze that enters through my window. Don't say my hut has nothing to offer. Come and I will share with you the cool breeze that enters through my window. I can just imagine going to visit him. There's no tea, there's no food. It's cold. (laughs) And then there's this deeper perception, this deeper perception of actually what's there. Oh, the cool breeze, the cool breeze that enters through the window. The thing that we can always miss. And how that deeper perception can lead to a deeper sense of what it means to give and what it means to receive. You know, such a narrow sense of giving and receiving. What a beautiful thing to have something, a perception that undermines that. Or again, another two-line poem from him. A thief had come and uh, actually had robbed his hut. (laughs) I know you think, you know, there's nothing there. (laughs) Stole his belongings and things like that. And so afterwards he, he wrote this poem he said, the thief, the thief left it behind, the moon at my window. The thief left it behind, the moon at my window. What a cool perception that undermines the things that we get attached to and value at the expense of other aspects of this activity of living and dying. We miss the moon, and I mean that on so many different levels. The perceptions that, that all of us teachers, I think of coming back to again and again that we've been encouraging you to cultivate is what Joseph spoke about last night. he went by uh, more of a, a commonly understood term for these perceptions called the three characteristics, impermanence, unreliability, the way he was talking about it last night, and this quality of, of the selfless nature of experience. It's interesting, this word for characteristic, lakana, the Buddha never used around these. So like the anatta lakana sutta, that was something that was, it was named after the Buddha. He called these the, the, the three different perceptions which I think fits for, so well for what we're talking about here. We're offering you way, uh, three different ways of perceiving or being sensitive to experience. And he went over those uh, uh, a little bit more in detail again last night. And it, for me, again, the sense of, of mystery, this word helps uh, uh, reveal something about what we see through the three characteristics. The, the the three perceptions, just to be clear about this, lead me to this tasting of the mystery. How so? When you reflect on it, the world of concept, the world of language, is it's it's this process of solidifying the world, it's making it permanent. The more this hardened mind sees in permanence, the more it undermines such a perspective. It undermines it in a transformative way, like those, those poems of Rilke can. They can undermine our usual way of seeing the world. And then the other ones fall upon that, as Joseph mentioned. If it's impermanent, it's unreliable. It undermines my notion that I'm going to find lasting satisfaction from some experience. And again, as he mentioned last night, it doesn't mean that we can't have satisfaction with experiences, it's just realizing it's not going to last. If everything's unpermanent, it's not going to last forever. And then not-self. We construct a world, a conceptual world around me. And this experience of not-self just doesn't fit into language. And I think that's why we often have a hard time with this not-self qualities because we're trying to force it into language in some way doesn't fit. In many ways it's it's simply a deeper taste of the mystery. And, and I want to point out that the direction of seeing these three perceptions of where it's going, to me, again, is, has this flavor of mystery to it. Really, that was the talk we heard last night. Seeing the three perceptions, allowing these to do their work, leads to the end of craving. What is the end of craving? Awakening. But what's that like, a mind that is free, Of craving a mind in other terms that's free of reactivity a mind that's free of greed hatred and delusion what are we moving towards here it's fascinating because the buddha um, doesn't spend a lot of time describing nibbana or describing the awakened life it's usually put in negative terms rather than giving some kind of description and it, it's interesting when people uh, ask about awakening or an awakened person, and I want to share with you a story about this to to help convey um, just the mysteriousness of awakening. So, again, once upon a time, the king, King Pasanadi was traveling through his kingdom the kingdom of Kosala and during his travels uh, they stayed the night in the town of uh, Tornavatu and while they were there the king was he's looking for something to do at night you know in a small town whatever was going on and (laughs) asked his attendant (laughs) asked his attendant is there so what's going on tonight are there any spiritual teachers that we could go visit for the night (laughs) <laughs> no, it's not the first thing you think, right? <laughs> Night on <of> the town, because <laughs> he's a good practitioner. <laughs> his attendant said, "Well, come to think of it, there's this awakened, this fully awakened Bhikkhuni, uh, who's an awakened nun of the Buddha by the name of Kema. And word has it that this revered lady, as it says, she is wise, competent, intelligent, learned." a splendid speaker ingenious so they decide to go uh, visit visitor and when they get to the tur- uh, king pasanati has all these questions about a fully awakened one one who is awake and so he asks how is it venerable one how is it that uh, does, does the tathagata, does an awakened one, exist after death? And she answers, well, the blessed one has not declared this, that the, the tathagata exists after death. Well, does the awakened one not exist after death? He doesn't declare that either. Well, does he both exist and not exist after death? You know, that's not declared about awakening as well. So what about the awakened person neither existing or not existing after death? Nope. <laughs> and then uh, uh, King Pasenadi gets uh, confused by this. And, and, and he basically asks, so, so what's the cause and reason why this hasn't been declared? Why are you giving me these answers to the questions I'm uh, uh, asking? What's up with this? And then she gives this this um, this uh, metaphor to the king. And he asks the question, what do you think, great king? Do you have an accountant or a calculator or a mathematician who can count the grains of, of sand in the river Ganges thus? There are so many grains, grains of sand. Or there are so many hundreds of grains of sand. Or there are so many hundreds of thousands of grains of sand. No, venerable one, then great king, do you have an accountant or calculator or mathematician who can count, who can measure the water in the great ocean thus? There are so many gallons of water. There are so many hundreds of gallons of water. There are so many hundreds of thousands of ga- gallons of water. No, venerable one, for what reason? Uh, because the great ocean is deep, it's immeasurable, it's hard to fathom. And then she goes on to say, yeah, just so, just so, awakening, or the awakened one, it's deep, it's immeasurable, it is hard to fathom. When we do this practice, we move towards the mystery, we move towards what is deep, what is immeasurable, what is hard to fathom. And we're given these, these things that it's the end of suffering, that it's beyond greed, hatred, and delusion. But to hear how it's, there's something much more than that, that just can't be put, put into words. What a beautiful thing to begin to touch, just as Joseph mentioned last night, even if it's just for a moment, moments of this touching, this, this intimacy, with a direct experience of what's going on, so I want to point out what prevents you from touching this flavor this quality of mystery i think that's the obvious question probably by now on the retreat right (laughs) you've you've come across the things that prevent that from touching the mystery it's all the reactivity that we've we've been able to become intimate with to really get a sense that's one level of it when my mind's reactive i can't touch this direct experience i can't move into this realm It's like we're we're fighting the manipulating experience rather than simply being with it. John O'Donohue puts it well. He says we're so busy managing our experience that we forget this great mystery that we are involved with. Have you noticed this about the mind? It can be so busy managing things that we we can't touch. There's a lack of intimacy. Again, just further with what prevents us. Again, just a little bit different language for something you already know. This this comes from uh, the poet W.S. Merwin from his poem, A River of Bees. it's a poem about a dream he's having. And he's looking how to navigate this mystery, this, this activity of living and dying. And he's finding himself in this dream going from room to room looking for the answer. At the end of the poem, uh, something striking happens. He comes to this door. And this is what he writes for the, the end of the poem. He says, On the door, so on the door that he's come to, on the door, it says what to do to survive. But we were not born to survive, only to live. On the door, it says what to do to survive, but we were not born to survive, only to live. I find this so important to remember, right? Remembering you're not gonna survive this. No one does. But it's funny we 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 don't uh, uh, really take that in that we're not going to survive. I mean, it's amazing so much of this reactivity is around sometimes, at least using this poetic language, around merely surviving. We're just trying to manage it all to get through it. We're trying to figure out what the what the instructions are on the door that tell us what to do to survive, but then we forget that we're here only to live. Would you be willing on this retreat to touch what it is to live? Not the, oh, I've got it figured out, but the mystery of living, the direct experience of it. Especially since we're not gonna survive. What else prevents touching the mystery? This goes back to the beginning of my poem, of, of my talk. I was sharing with you that that the practice was the antidote for this this um, habitual tendency I had of of trying to navigate my difficulty not by being with them, but but actually to try to figure it out to see if I could have all the answers to it. That somehow once I have all the answers, then my difficulties would. Would disappear. So this grasping on to knowing, to knowing in an intellectual way. And of course, intellectual knowing, it's very important. It can be really helpful. And I'm sure you've seen by now how much it can get in the way, how confining it is when I desperately want to know in this rigid, fixed, small way. And I think that's what you find, in, especially in, in Zen, why there's such a strong emphasis on not knowing. For example, the, the late Korean Zen master, uh, Sung Sung, Da San Sanim, he, he, he always was saying, you know, to cultivate, to have this don't know mind. I remember this is towards the beginning of my practice. I was in a sitting group, and the woman who was running it was a student of um, Sung Sung, Da San Sanim. And at the time, I was working on a project, which uh, her background and what she taught actually was, uh, this was her background. So I was hoping that she could help me with this, with this project. And I was having a deadline come up. And things were not working out for this project. I had no idea how to finish it or how to get through it. So I, I uh, uh, took her aside one day and I said, I'm wondering if you can help me with this project. I don't, I don't know what direction to go in. I'm really lost. I don't know what to do about it. And she looked at me and she said, so you don't know what to do about this? And I said, yes, that's why I'm coming to you. I don't know what to do about this. (laughs) And she said, oh, that's so good. Just keep that don't know mind and that will be good. And then she walked away. (laughs) I wish I could tell you that I found it really enlightening and like an amazing experience. It just pissed me off. <laughs> and I kind of wanted to say to her, enough of like the zen spiritual stuff. Can you just can we just have a you know, a conversation about help me with my problem. <laughs> uh, but in the end, after the project, <laughs> I really appreciated it because it noticed I, I, I noticed that there, there was this dynamic in my life that that was the place I wanted to have my safety and security was to know. There's something, there's something so um, seductive about that. This thing of knowing. And it gets reinforced. Right? It's amazing what happens in this culture, right? You convince people that you know a lot, and they'll give you a job. <laughs> Wild. that's all you have to do i I appreciated how bonnie was sharing this with us this is this is panyamana this is the conceit around around knowing or wisdom and then we create the self right this the self that that gets built around knowing something They give us jobs we feel like we can figure out things But it's such a trap because then we're putting our safety, our sense of security in this place that is is, uh, so unreliable. Staking out a sense of security in this realm of I know. So really residing and not knowing in this sense. Not knowing in this specific sense of dropping the need to have it all figured out. Can you notice when that arises, this need to have it all figured out? Can you allow it to be messy? Can you allow yourself actually not to know? And hopefully you'll hear in this, this is a particular kind of not knowing. This is a, a quality of of, uh, of openness. This is not the not knowing of delusion or of stupidity. It's the one to be open in what's in front of us. A few talks ago, I I shared with you the story of Fayan, who is on his pilgrimage. And and he meets with the hermit, Dizong, and and Dizong asks him what he's doing. And he said he's on this pilgrimage and asks him um, where he's going. And he said, wherever my feet take me. And then the question, what do you expect to get out of this? And, And Fayan says, I don't know. And to hear even now again, I just want to repeat this: how, in that context, the depth of that, of really just to be honest, I have no idea, and to actually reside there rather than to be the one or the self who's got it figured out. There's there's a vulnerability there, and there's also a courage that comes with that. Can you rest there? This quality of not knowing. And I find it so helpful, especially towards the end of a long retreat. Because so often the mind can begin to feel like it already knows everything. It knows the breath. It knows the feet walking. It knows a sound. It knows this emotion. Or these racing thoughts. But it actually doesn't. Can there be a vulnerability and a courage to open up to that quality of not knowing? Sensing into the mystery of walking, of hearing, of tasting. This curiosity of what is this? And yes, again, we're we're cultivating, we're having the sensitivity to these particular flavors from these perceptions of impermanence and unreliability and not self in the service of leading us towards the mystery, towards the direct experience. And knowing is important. It's just not this intellectual knowing. It's not the, I've got it figured out knowing. It's more like the knowing, uh, the the, the analogy that comes to mind is, is more the knowing of knowing how to ride a bike. Or knowing how to swim. Right? That knowledge of knowing how to ride a bike, can you imagine trying to explain that to someone, how you stay on a bike? It's impossible to put that into words. I mean, you could probably figure out some kind of words, but you know it. Isn't it amazing? You can get, If you learn how to ride a bike, you can get on a bike, and there's the knowing. It's coming to know in a visceral sense, in a bodily sense, we could say, these three characteristics, because that's what liberates the heart and mind. And it's just coming back to the ordinary, these ordinary simple experiences, not the dramatic, the simple. The Zen Master uh, Taishan, uh, known as uh, Tokusan in, in Japanese, he puts it well. He says, what is known as realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. What is known as realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. So may we all realize the mystery in a way that leads to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. So let's sit just for a minute.